Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Nikki Drews. And I'm Cheryl Hall. And this is Killers, Cults and Queens. The podcast where we're going to learn all about the scariest, spookiest and damn right weirdest corners of the world. In this episode, we're looking at one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. It's time to explore the many crimes of H.H. Holmes and his horrific murder castle. They found sinister-looking torture devices and shelves full of acids. <gasps> Legs and hips and body, body. <laughs> the coffee's kicked in, oh, everybody. Dear. I'm sorry. I need a cigarette and I don't even smoke. Are you ready? Oh my god, a castle? Wow! Welcome to Killers, Cults and Queens, the show where we take you on a journey into the darkest corners of the world. Today we're taking it all the way back to the 1800s to learn about probably the most well-known serial killer in American history, H.H. Holmes. But firstly, how you doing, Arshez? I am fabulous, baby. Um, Bar this morning, I had a man hock up a big, like, Flemble on the street as I was walking to the studio. Sorry, Ooh. I know that's probably disgusting for everybody to hear, but I, it was traumatising for me, guys, because I was just walking, minding my own business to the studio, and then, bam, he just flems at me, and I was just, like, absolutely not. No, no, no. Like, what is wrong with people? Ugh, yeah. Speaking of which, I was on a flight yesterday, and what the hell is wrong with people? <laughs> 
I mean, th- th- this could be our sub podcast. It could be. What the hell is wrong with people? I know. I know. <laughs> well, tell me what happened. What went down? Are we yelling timber? Uh, well, there was children on my flight, two of them, and um, you know, as as we know, I'm not the greatest fan of wee babbies. It's all right if they're well behaved. But these two were not. <laughs> and I, for two and a half hours, had to deal with the game of peekaboo from a child I didn't want to talk to. Just the whole time. <laughs> and the parents were not doing anything. And I ignored him and did... Uh, we're talking arms through the seats. We're talking touching my knees. Talking like cl- oh. climbing through the side of the chair. Running up and down the aisle. It was not a nice relaxing flight, which is what I was... I, I, I'm not a, an easy flyer. Okay, yeah, no, I can completely understand that. But Nikki, I've got to say, you are a very lovely and approachable person, and you, <laughs> let's not get me wrong here. <laughs> you, are, you are, but also you, you are the queen of Halloween. Yeah, and you do dress head to toe in Halloween. And Halloween is the season that kids go and enjoy. It's true. I, I am, you know, one of those kids like to have a look at what I'm wearing, which yes. is fine. Because it's fabulous. <laughs> exactly. And I don't mind that. My demographic is small children and old ladies. So those are the two that really like me. <laughs> Do you know what? If you go onto my like Instagram insights, my insights, like I have a big demographic of like 40 to 55. Excellent. I just love, I love mums. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I feel like I've got like that... It's the hun mums. Yes, yeah. exactly that. Like, I feel like I'm like one of the relatable people. Like, yeah. I could I could hang out with anybody. Yeah, I Old think so. Old people. Yeah. Middle aged mums. Yeah, exactly. Your friends. Yeah. And then, like, I'm I'm like the oh god, no, this is gonna sound really bad, <laughs> but like, I'm so good with kids because I am like a kid at heart. Yeah. So I can play, keep kids entertained. So whenever I'm at like family parties, I always end up with the children. Ah, see, it's not for me. I am the grumpy auntie that sits in the corner, definitely. But unfortunately, that does seem to bring children towards me that then are like, why, why are you not wanting to play? <laughs> so I end, it's, I've created a rod for my own back there, I think. <laughs> yeah, they, they see the red flags and they go, we they want, do. We want to ter- turn it into a, a rainbow flag, pride. Yeah. Yes. Whereas I'm like, you want to hear a story about a dead body? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So there's this drag queen called Tammy Brown. And she, she makes the most kookiest videos. And then she she made this video once. She was like, did I ever tell you about the time I saw a dead body? <laughs> I thought it was a mannequin. And I was like, oh, I could put my dresses on that. No, it was a dead body. And I was like, <laughs> But yeah, it, 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 it's one of those things, though. Halloween... Um, ooky spooky season. Yes. I mean, it's now we're now in Christmas territory. We are. How fabulous! Yeah. Have it, you, you uh, been? Uh, what do they call it? Uh, Whamageddon. Where you here last Christmas, and then that's oh, it. You lose the game. I thought you were calling Winter Wonderland another thing. No, I should though, shouldn't I? Whamageddon. <laughs> I, mean, I love a bit of Winter Wonderland though. I've never been. Have you never been? No. <gasps> well, podcast trip out to Winter Wonderland. There we go. Yeah. There we go. And then we can do all the scary stories of Hyde Park. We can. Or is it moved? Or is it still in Hyde Park? No, I would assume it's probably still there. Fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. Well, there we go. Day trip out. <laughs> anyway, we've got a podcast to get on with. We have. <laughs> so this one is pretty rough. 
Um, do you reckon you've got a strong enough stomach for it? Uh, I haven't eaten this morning, so maybe that will help me through this episode because yeah, there's, nothing, there's nothing just but dry coffee heaves. and re- coffee and regret to come out. Yeah, just dry heaves. You'll yeah. be fine. <laughs> it's like that scene for bridesmaids. <laughs> <laughs> well, take a deep breath. This is quite the story. It's July 1895 and police are on a high after arresting a tricksy con man. They've been after him for months. They knew he was up to no good. And now, after nabbing him on a minor charge, they're investigating some strange goings-on at his hotel in Chicago. The Fraudsters' hotel was known as The Castle, and what investigators were about to discover would prove that this was no simple B&B. After scouring the building's 100 rooms, they descended into the cellar, where they could have never predicted the scene that lay before them. In the gloom of the vast basement, lit only by the red glow of the human-sized stove burning away in the corner, their senses were accosted by the smell of ash, acid and, most worryingly, blood. As their eyes glanced around in the darkness, they began to take in what laid before them. Wall-to-wall shelves filled with bottles of acid and in the middle of the room, a surgical table drenched with blood. What had started off as an investigation into a con man was about to unveil one of the biggest serial killers in American history. But who was he, and what other horrors lurked inside the murder hotel? Let's find out. What on earth is this episode of Four in a Bed? That's what I want to know. Yeah, they wouldn't be winning top stars, I don't think. They wouldn't be able to get. They wouldn't get around to rating it. And what would you give the breakfast out of ten? <laughs> I don't think he's serving breakfast. Mm, oh my god, this is so. Obviously, murderers are murderers. Yeah. They do their job. Yeah. But... Their job, like they're employed. <laughs> Get the P60. Um, but, crikey, this definitely took a turn because I was not expecting a cellar full of dead bodies burning the night away. Yeah. And it's only going to get worse from there, I'm afraid. Oh, fabulous. Stone. 1800s, crikey. Yes. Yeah. So we're going back quite a way today. Now, I'm going to start this story off with a huge disclaimer. The story about H.H. Holmes, as it's historical and wild, has been overblown, exaggerated, and the truth and the myth have crossed over in parts, meaning the story nowadays is difficult to pinpoint to the actual facts, as even when it was reported initially, press had a field day with it focusing on the story of it all and not the cold, hard facts. So essentially what we have here is part fable, part truth, but we've done our best to get to the facts. But at this point, it's very difficult to know what's what. So what do we do, Shez? We take it with a... Pinch of salt, pepper and all the spices in between. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, truly, guys. Like, don't be sending us DMs saying, you got this story wrong. No, just enjoy it. Just listen to... My dulcet tones and Nikki's beautiful voice. So we're going to do our best to try and get to the bottom of it. But yes, as we said, take it with a very large tablespoon full of salt. <laughs> exactly. It's a Thursday, whatever day you're listening to this on. Just have fun. Yeah, enjoy just yourself. enjoy your Thursday. Have yeah. a good time. Yeah. H.H. H. Holmes was born as Herman Webster Mudgett in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, in the USA on May 16th, 1861. 
Born to very religious parents, mother Theodate Page Price and labourer father Levi Horton Mudgett, he was part of a fairly large family. He was your classic middle child with two older siblings, Ellen and Arthur, and two younger siblings, Henry and Mary. His parents were part of the first batch of people to descend from their colonist parents. So Holmes would have been third or fourth generation American. So we're going way back in time here. Oh God, it's like Roanoke all over again. Yeah, not quite that far, but, oh. <laughs> but we're getting there. Yeah. Now, by all accounts, Herman, who from now on we're going to refer to as Holmes, because he changes his name so often throughout this story, this is the only part that really sticks, was a smart kid who did well academically in school. Now, it's difficult to get a clear picture of his early life as Holmes himself lied about it. He manipulated information on his census forms, creating an air of mystery about himself. But basically, all we learn from this is that he was a man who didn't want to be known. He was a slippery individual. Cracky, they always are. The one thing we do know about Holmes is that he was bullied at school. Now, this isn't completely out of the ordinary. Lots of people are bullied at school and don't turn into serial killers. But unfortunately, Holmes had something in his brain that switched when he encountered his tormentors. He was actually later quoted saying that, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer. No more than a poet can help the inspiration to sing. Are we te- dipping our toes into the world of religion now? Um, yeah. Mm, sort of yeah <laughs> when when you start saying the devil is inside me then that raises a red flag for me because i don't think that's an excuse for what is going on with you mentally and physically like no sorry. it's just passing the blame isn't it yeah yeah and when there's a blame there's a claim <laughs> One incident that sparked his interest in death was the day that bullies discovered he was afraid of visiting the doctor. They frog-marched him into the local doctor's office and forced him to stand in front of a skeleton that was in the room of the office and stare at it. Whilst he was scared at first, Holmes later said that the experience actually exercised him of all fears about death and sparked a fascination that would last a lifetime. By the time he was 16, Holmes had graduated from the Phillips Exeter Academy, a highly selective boarding school in the area, and started doing some teaching jobs here and there in his hometown, Gilmanton, to keep himself afloat. It was around this time that he met Clara Lovering. Clara was a beautiful young woman, just 17 years old, from a very prominent and, more importantly, fairly wealthy family in New Hampshire. Always handy. Holmes was smitten, and after a year of courtship, they eloped and were married on the 4th of July, 1878. How very patriotic. 4th of July. Baby, you're a firework. Come and let your colours burst. (laughs) I did actually look that up to see if the 4th of July was a thing at that point, and it was by about four years, so we're all right. (laughs) Bravo, Holmes. You're doing your bit for your country, for flag and for country. Just two years later, their son, Robert Lovering Mudgett, was born. By this point, Holmes was bored of teaching and had taken up a clerk job in a general store in a completely different city, meaning that Holmes was living in one city and Clara and Robert were living with his parents miles away. Whilst Holmes had all this time to think, he realised that he wanted to pursue a career in medicine and become a doctor. 
and obligingly, Clara agreed to support him through medical school, which is, she clearly has a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, because I know how expensive medical school is, and pretty much back in the day, I'm sure it was still that expensive. Yeah, I would have thought so. Do you know what I love? He's done a do a leap of full 180. Yep. From being scared yep. to now suddenly. So really, we should be thanking the bullies for getting him out of his phobia. Mm, but it's not going to end well. So I don't <laughs> I'm trying so. to shine some light on this case. Yeah. <laughs> Look, if if anybody's got to be good cop, it's got to be me, hasn't it? Mm, but he is a nasty murderer. I'm sorry to break it to you. <laughs> I know, but at this stage of his life, I'm not sure he is. Yet. No, no, we're we're going to get there very very quickly though. Right. <laughs> What for bloody Ferrari are we driving in? <laughs> Zero to 60. Exactly. He enrolled at the University of Vermont's medicine programme in Burlington, again away from his wife and baby son, and would travel to spend time with them fairly often. Although it was around this point that rumours started swirling that Holmes was violent and abusive towards poor Clara. Okay, yeah, I take all of that back, I just said. Yeah. Now, Holmes was pretty particular, and for some reason, he decided that the University of Vermont's programme just wasn't challenging enough for him. So after a year, he dropped out to join the University of Michigan. They had a programme that was right up his street, the study of medicine, specialising in dissection. Oh no. It's whilst Holmes was in Michigan that he started to develop some strange pastimes. He was always a bit of a rogue, but now he was really starting to push the boundaries. Whilst enrolled, he worked in the anatomy lab with Professor William James Herdman, and together they would go out at night and rob local graves so they could sell the cadavers. No, 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 no. Sorry, I don't like that. No. I told you we were going to get there very, very quickly. <laughs> I just I just want people to be nice, but then I guess I'm on the wrong podcast for that. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> Robbing graves. I don't like that term. I really don't like it. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was very, like, well, not popular. Popular is not the right word. It's not like everybody was going out and robbing graves and having a good time. It was, it was something that was sort of necessary, kind of, back in the day mm-hmm. because they needed to practice medicine and they didn't have consenting bodies to do that on like we do nowadays. Very true. Very true. I do understand why... From a scientific perspective, you would dig up graves. Like, obviously, it's not the nicest thing to do, but if you've got to, you've got to do what you've got to do to look at some bodies. Yes. Legs and hips and body, hardy. <laughs> the coffee's kicked in, oh, everybody. Dear. I'm sorry. Off she goes. <laughs> Beautiful 180. <laughs> anyway, HHL. And his trickery didn't stop there. He wasn't just selling the cadavers for a quick buck. He was in it for the long game, mutilating the dead bodies and then using them to claim on life insurance policies he'd taken out on fake people, but producing a real body, saying that the person had died in an accident. He went all out with this as well. He burned bodies, broke bones, and generally made the whole thing as believable, but as gruesome as possible. Luckily for Clara, she was living back in New Hampshire with little Robert, and at this point had very little to do with her husband, Holmes. And this is really sweet. Without any financial support from her husband, she learned dressmaking and then set up a successful shop. Bless her. 
As she wasn't really bothered about Holmes by this point, she was happy for him to drift, and she didn't ask him to file for divorce. Of course, she couldn't do that anyway, because she was a woman. Yeah. And you couldn't do that back then. I mean, she she had the, the power card. She was in a good financial position. She had skills and tool sets to provide for herself and her child. And realistically, some people are very good independent that they don't need the support of another and power to you girl because I think everybody needs to realize that independency and belief in yourself is always inside of you you just need to ignite the flame and really remind yourself that you can do it yeah and I think at this point as well she obviously did come from a fairly well-off family so she probably had a little bit of an advantage from that side but she was learning to do stuff for herself and she was going to go out and be independent because I think she'd realised she was going to be made a single mother and that was what was going to happen so she had to provide for her for her baby I wish I knew how to make a dress (laughs) we can teach you (laughs) please I'm still triggered from two episodes of Drag Race (laughs) but back to Holmes He graduated from the University of Michigan in 1884 after passing his exams with flying colours. Completely forgetting about his young family, Holmes spent the next few years travelling from place to place, leaving a trail of sinister destruction wherever he went. First, he moved to Moore's Forks in New York, where he got a job as a doctor at a pharmacy. Not long after he arrived, though, Holmes was seen around town with a young boy. But this young boy soon disappeared. Oh no. When Holmes was questioned on the matter, he claimed that the little boy had gone home to Massachusetts and then he suspiciously packed his bags and immediately left town. So it begins. Yeah. You don't just suddenly, I'm out of here, if you're not guilty of something. No. (laughs) It's a big red flag, I think. Things start getting a little hazy around this point, as I'm sure he was laying low for a bit. But he then pops back up again in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, where he got a job at Norristown Hospital. But that didn't last, and he mysteriously quit just a few days later. Days? Just days. I reckon what he did was he was scouting around for cadavers or if he could steal dead bodies, and that didn't happen, so I think he must have peaced out after he realised he couldn't. He then decides he'll try the same thing again as he did in New York and gets another prescribing doctor role in a mum and pop pharmacy. But whilst he was working there, a little boy died soon after taking medicine that Holmes had prescribed to him. Oh no. Holmes, of course, denied he was involved and once again history repeats itself and he hotfoots it out of there before anyone can press him further. Now, up until this point, Holmes was still going by his birth name, Herman Webster Mudgett, or variations on that theme. But it was during his next trip, on his way to Chicago, that he came up with the name Henry Howard Holmes. H.H. Exactly. He pulls up in the new city, and from that day forward, he used his new name, making sure to bury his past, and making sure no one would connect him with the strange happenings he had left in his wake. And it wasn't just death and disappearance that surrounded Holmes. It was bizarre efforts in cash-grabbing, too. According to the Boston Globe, at one point in Holmes's travels, he insured his own life for $20,000. That's over $600,000 today. Craig, how did you even do that? I don't know. People can have life insurance policies, can't they? Yeah. So, 
but to do that for such a large amount of money is crazy because surely he wasn't worth that much like no offense to him <laughs> but he's just doctor in a pharmacy go on drag him Nick. <laughs> drag him <laughs> But, you know, he's not got, like, his own practice or anything like that. He's not, like, a a big surgeon or anything. He's just a a, a doctor that works in a pharmacy. Yeah. No offence. He ain't got big cards to lay on the table. No, exactly. So why would an insurance company decide to pay out £20,000? Especially to a fake name. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Then he went into a hotel in Rhode Island, sporting long hair and a beard. He somehow sourced a dead body. Or it could have been alive and he'd murdered the person, we just don't know. Took it two miles away from the hotel, cut its head off... What? ...and buried the rest. (sighs) He then showered and shaved, cutting his hair and removing his beard. He waltzes back into the same hotel, books a room under a different name and asks after H.H. Holmes. The people behind the desk said, ''Oh yeah, he's staying here, but he's just popped out.'' Then Holmes took the head burned it in the hotel furnace and tried to pass it off as his own. Are you joking? He's trying to off himself to get the money? Yeah. So he's producing a a fake H.H. Holmes so he can then walk into the insurance office and and claim the money. He really is smart because even I can't keep up with this web of lies. In 1885, Holmes arrived in Chicago. He got a job at Elizabeth S. Holton's drugstore in Englewood. He was a hard worker and eventually bought the pharmacy from its owners. Now, a note to say here that it is rumoured that the owner of the drugstore mysteriously disappeared right after Holmes bought it, but apparently that was debunked, as there's census records for them into the 1920s. Oh, good. And it wasn't just work that was keeping Holmes busy. He soon met his second wife, Myrta Belknap. As it turns out, Holmes actually had filed for divorce without Clara's knowledge and just weeks after they were first married. However, as she didn't know about it, the lawsuit never went anywhere and so they were still legally married when he took his new wife, Myrta. Naughty, naughty. Now 28 years old, Holmes would have his second child, but his first with Myrta, a baby girl who they called Lucy Theodate after his mother, and Holmes splits his time between their home in a town called Wilmette and working in Chicago, where he would spend long stretches of time tending to business. I think business is code for bodies. Yeah. (laughs) Normally business means other things. It means the hanky-panky naughty-naughty. Yeah, well, we can't rule that out either, because he was quite a wrong one. So, yeah, Yeah. probably all over the place, I would have thought. Yeah. This business? Well, Holmes had a vision. A vision of a grand hotel, one with apartments for permanent guests, beautiful rooms for those just visiting, a whole ground floor of retail space with room for a barbershop and a new pharmacy. Luckily for him, just across the street from Little Holton's drugstore was a vast empty lot, perfect for his sinister plans. Oh no. I oh, There's so many points in this that I think this is where it's beginning. And I'm like, oh, this is where it's beginning. It's begun from the beginning. Yeah, it's he, he is evil from the start with this one, really. Yeah. You know, you, you. I like that you tried to feel sympathetic for him in the beginning, but no, no. Not that I feel sympathetic for murderers, no. especially serial killers. Exactly. Let's remember that point. Yes, let's, <laughs> let's preface that before you try and cancel me, everybody. <laughs> But yeah, there is no, there's no redeeming quality with Holmes, I think. It's just shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just a nasty, nasty piece of work. 
So it's time we get into the part of this story H.H. Holmes is infamous for, the murder castle. In 1887, construction started on the empty lot that H.H. Holmes has bought for his dream hotel. After a few years of setbacks, Holmes Hotel, the castle, was finally open. It was a huge building, almost taking up an entire block, consisting of shops on the bottom floor, a hundred hotel rooms in the middle, and then apartments on top. That's impressive. That's really impressive. The construction of the hotel took such a long time because Holmes was being deliberately sneaky with making sure no one cottoned on to what he was doing. He'd hire builders, not pay them, and then hire new ones, then pay the old ones, and then rehire them, and so it went on. He had a plan in mind for what he wanted to do to his paying guests once the hotel was finished, and as such, he'd factored this into the build. There were narrow passageways that went absolutely nowhere, stairways that took you to the same place you started in, peepholes, false partitions, hatches, and disturbingly, rooms which could be made airtight. What? It had doors that opened to brick walls, rooms with no windows, trap doors that opened into deep dark nothingness, asphyxiation chambers, secret rooms that were completely walled off, and most concerningly, a large chute that went all the way down to the incredibly large basement that stretched underneath the road outside, in which there was a big human-sized furnace. I'm not going to lie, this sounds like American Horror Story Hotel. Yeah, this is what it was based on. Wow! Okay, this is making a lot more sense now. Yeah. There's me thinking Ryan Murphy's a genius. (laughs) (laughs) No, all of American Horror Story is all based on real... A real, like, every series is a a real story. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. Okay. I've got a question. Yeah. I now understand why all the workers were hired and fired so quickly because clearly I've, I've, I'm dumb. Let's, let's, (laughs) let's call a spade a spade. I'm dumb. But even I could work out that something dodge was going on here. Yeah, exactly. So they had to get out before anybody cotton on to what's going on, clearly. Yeah. So what would happen is he would hire them, for example, and say to them, you can build half this shoot, then fire them. And then, you know, they would obviously think they were going to do something else. It would be a laundry shoot or something. And the other people would come in and he'd tell them that it was, you know, for, I don't know, something else. Food waste. Yeah, something like that. And so they go, oh, okay, we'll finish it. Because obviously those other people didn't. And yeah. then it would be for for bodies. Joy of joys. But I, my question is, I've just realised I didn't actually ask the question. <laughs> my question is, is he doing this all on his own? Uh, well, he's about to get somebody. Oh, I'm jumping the plot. You are, you are. You're always one step ahead of the game. That's what I like about you. <laughs> because my my binoculars are out. I'm not using a magnifying glass because I keep it a safe distance. My binoculars are out. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you out and i can see into the future yeah and i'm always like i'm one step ahead because i never like to be like jump scared yeah detective cheryl is on the case hey got to do what got to do <laughs> there was even an elaborate alarm system that would alert homes if someone had opened specific doors or stepped on a particular step and creepily several of the airtight rooms were lined with gas pipes with the switch to control this gas in another room, meaning homes could kill an unsuspecting victim without having to be anywhere near them. One of Holmes's first victims was his mistress, a lady called Julia Smythe. She was married at the time of their affair, as was Holmes, and she had moved with her husband into one of the castle's apartments on the top floor, taking up a job in the pharmacy downstairs selling jewellery. It wasn't long until Holmes worked his charm and seduced her, but once her husband found out, he left town, leaving Julia and her daughter Pearl to live in the castle alone with Holmes, which I'm sure you can expect didn't turn out well for the both of them. No. Both Julia and Pearl were reported missing on Christmas Eve in 1891. Holmes had murdered them both. Now, we don't know quite how or why this happened, but when later questioned about where Julia and Pearl were, he said Julia died during an abortion. We don't know if Holmes tried to do this himself and botched it, or if this was just a cover-up story. However, we do know that Pearl's skeleton was later found in the cellar of the hotel, and it's believed he'd poisoned her and told people that she'd been sent to live with a friend of Julia's. A year later, in December 1892, Emmeline Sagrandi was reported missing. Emmeline had been working in the castle since May of that year and just before Christmas had disappeared without a trace. Then Emily Van Tassel, another girl that worked in the building, vanished. Still working on his scams in his free time, when he wasn't murdering people, Holmes became buddies with a guy called Benjamin Peitzel. Buddies is actually probably too generous of a term to give here. Old Ben was charmed by Holmes, like so many others that had been exploited by him, and was totally under his spell. He did anything that Holmes asked of him, and ended up being his right-hand man in a lot of scams. Double blood on the hands. See, I told you, you were already there. You knew it was coming. Yeah, because this is a, this is a big task to take on. Yeah, it's a giant operation. And I can I can barely manage myself, let alone a hundred room hotel with shops, apartments and murders. One of those scams involved swindling an actress called Minnie Williams out of her home in Texas. 
Minnie had travelled to Chicago looking for work and unfortunately for her, ran straight into the sinister grip of Holmes whilst in an unemployment queue. Oh no. He offered her a job as a stenographer at the castle, basically a transcriber or a typist. Thank you, because I was literally like, so no, I'm giving it up. I had to look it up as well. Oh, great. <laughs> and while she was there, he worked his charm and somehow persuaded her to transfer the deeds to her property she owned in Fort Worth, Texas with her sister to a man called Alexander Bond, who was yet another alias of Holmes. He must keep a little little black book. You would have to keep a little book, wouldn't you? To remember who you told you who you were. In 1886, I was Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> So, in April 1893, Minnie obliged and gave the property to this Mr. Bond. Mr. James Bond. Bond. Mr. Bond. <laughs> <laughs> and it seemed that the arrangement wasn't just financial. The next month, Holmes and Minnie turned up as husband and wife. We don't actually think they were married married, though, but it seemed like they were, and I think they were probably just pretending so they could get this flat. Yeah. And so they did that to rent a flat in Lincoln Park in Chicago. Not like the band. No, not like the band. Minnie's sister Annie then visits her sister and her new boyfriend at their new abode. And then Annie, in inverted commas, writes a letter to her mother saying the three of them were now going to Europe for a trip and that they might be a while. Strangely enough, the sisters went to Europe permanently as they never returned. And not long after their trip, Holmes transferred Minnie's property in Texas over to Ben Peitzel. Of course, they wouldn't use his real name, so he was then Benton T. Lyman. Lyman! Lyman! It took me a second, but I'm here with you in the room. <laughs> Lyman. Oh, God. Lyman! He's running out of surnames. Yeah, he is. He's just spitting facts now. <laughs> yeah. You'd think that you would think of something a little bit more, you know... I could have called him... Um, Smith. If you rearrange it, it comes up as Manly. <laughs> Benton T. Manly. Oh, hey. e- even better than Lyman, though, I think. Or uh, Benton Lee Murderara. <laughs> <laughs> when he wasn't scamming property or conning people, Holmes kept himself busy back at his murder hotel, creating a string of missing people. Dr. Rustler, who worked in the castle, disappeared in 1892. Another stenographer for Holmes. Miss Kitty Kelly went missing in that same year. That's a drag name in itself, Kitty Kelly. It is, isn't it? Welcome to the stage. Kitty Kelly. (laughs) John G. David vanished in 1893 after visiting the nearby World's Fair in Chicago. And the long list of victims goes on. Henry Walker, who also worked for Holmes, disappeared in 1883. Milford Cole vanished in 1894 after receiving a telegram from Holmes to come and work for him in Chicago. And Lucy Burbank disappeared in 1895. Her bank book was later found in Holmes's hotel. If there's one thing we know for sure, it's that if you entered Holmes's murder castle, you could check out any time you liked, but you could never leave. Unfortunately for Holmes, but not his victims, the days of the murder castle were numbered. In early 1894, Holmes' precious hotel was ravaged by fire destroying a large portion of the third floor. In typical Holmes fashion, he'd insured the building with four different insurers and filed for his payouts. But the companies weren't having it and denied his claims. So they're clocking on now. They are. They suspected Holmes of starting the fire himself. And once they started pressing to prosecute him, 
he did what he does best. He's got that fire exit door. He's off. (laughs) But of course, being the trickster he is, he's still got a bolt hole in Fort Worth, Texas, which you'll remember he stole from sisters Minnie and Annie. So in July 1894, he heads there to lay low. And in a personal plot twist, he also arrives with a new wife. How do you... Right, okay, okay, okay. It is the 1800s. Yes. It's a long journey from Chicago to Texas. Yeah, how long would that take? Well, it's from top to toe. Shall I Google Maps it? It's top to toe. Currently, in 2022, it will take you 17 hours to drive from Chicago to Texas. So that's driving, not on horseback. Which that's is driving. Was happening it here. will take you 16 days if you were to walk and four days on a bike. So probably like 10 days on horseback then, do we think? Sure. He'd abandoned Myrta and their daughter and had married Georgiana Yoke. Of course, Holmes didn't ever divorce any of his previous wives, so at this point he was married to three different women at the same time. But Georgiana soon realised the mess she got embroiled in, as soon after they arrived in Texas, Holmes was actually arrested and sent to prison for selling mortgage goods in St. Louis, Missouri. Basically, he was selling items that actually belonged to the bank. So it would be the equivalent of, you know, if you've got a mortgage on your house saying to somebody, oh, yeah, no, actually, I can sell this to you, and then not declaring it to the bank and just taking all the money. Crikey! Like, I couldn't even believe that he's trying to think that he can get away with this. Yeah, he genuinely thinks he can just sell other items that belong to the bank and not be found out for it. Just ridiculous. Hey, karma always comes back around. He was bailed out, but whilst he was hanging out in jail, he met an outlaw called Marion Hedgepeth. Marion was serving 25 years in jail, but he'd been chatting to Holmes about his most recent plan to cash in on an insurance policy, and he was keen to get involved. And just as a side note, Marion was known as the handsome bandit. If you Google him, you'll see why. I can't wait wait to see this on the Instagram. Very handsome man. Holmes had conducted a plan to yet again take out a policy on himself and then fake his own death. He made a deal with Marion to give him a $500 commission if he gave him the contact details of a dodgy lawyer that he could trust. Marion introduced him to a young, freshly qualified but decidedly shifty attorney in St. Louis called Jephthah Howe. Jephthah was like, OMG, this plan is amazing, I'm in. But unfortunately for the shit Ocean's Eleven style team, the insurance company wasn't having any of it. (laughs) You, You needed the Ocean Eight, you needed the women. Yeah, that's that's what it should have been. It would have been great then. Who ran the world? Girls. Exactly. So Holmes pivoted and set his sights on a new target. And unfortunately, he was about to look closer to home and to his right-hand man, Benjamin Peitzel. Holmes had got the gang together and convinced Ben to fake his own death so that Ben's wife, Carrie, could collect the insurance payout of $10,000, about 300000 in today's money. Four, that's a house. Yeah, not too bad. The four of them would share the money and they'd all skip off into the sunset. They spent a while working on the plan and in the end decided that it would be done back in Philadelphia. They then dream up an elaborate death for a fictional man named Ben Perry. They give him a whole backstory and Peitzel dreamt up that this guy was an inventor and so the story was he was working on a crazy experiment which went wrong, exploded and then killed him. 
Excellent. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's all going to work out fine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's that whole age-old thing of the more strange the story, the more believable it will be. Yes, yes. And then the aliens came and got <laughs> you. And then you were there. And you and, and Adam, you were there too. <laughs> and carried him away with his ruby slippers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All Holmes had to do now was get a dead body from somewhere. However, that all seemed too much like hard work, so instead he soaked a rag in chloroform, which he then used to knock Peitzel out, and then he set fire to him. Absolutely ruthless. Nah, nah, don't like that. But it gets worse. Oh, for goodness sake. The chloroform allegedly didn't completely knock Ben out, and so when Holmes set fire to him, he may have still been awake. No. <laughs> Just no. No. Yeah. With a body to produce to the life insurance people, they paid out and Holmes was quids in. However, not content with this, he then went to Peitzel's wife, told her Ben had had to go to London to lay low whilst they sorted the insurance claim so they didn't get rumbled. Carrie accepted this yarn, but there was still a matter of business to attend to. The body in the morgue needed to be identified by a family member. As it so happened, Carrie was unwell that day, along with the two of her five children. So she sent her daughter, Alice, who was just 14, to go and identify the body on her behalf. Now, that's that's a one-way ticket to traumatising a teenage child. Yeah. Now, obviously, she she doesn't think that it's actually the father that's in there. She thinks it's a, oh my a God. body. So Carrie is in on this, so she thinks it's a decoy body, so she doesn't think it's... Actually him. Actually him. But at what point are they going to figure out that it's actually him? Well, it worked out in Holmes' favour, as Carrie would have more than likely worked out it was her husband and not a random cadaver. And perhaps Holmes may have just had something to do with her mysterious illness. Holmes suggested to Carrie that he should look after the three fit and healthy children, Howard, Nellie and Alice whilst Carrie and the other two kids recovered. And she let him have them. She must be very, very trusting in this whole situation. I have a sneaking suspicion that he might have possibly given her a little bit of poison or something and then decided he was going to exact this elaborate ruse and take the kids away. Oh, bless her, because obviously she's not in sound mind. No. And state. Exactly. And, you know, as far as she's concerned, her husband has just jetted off to London. Well, not jetted because <laughs> you weren't going on a plane then. But, yeah, has now made his way to London. So she's on her own for however long. Because yeah. we, as we know from our Roanoke episode, it can take quite a while to travel across. Three months, four days and 13 hours. Was, is that the exact number? No, I just made that up. Okay. <laughs> I was going to be well impressed then. You should have said yes. As I think I said. it was three months, though. So I'm going to give myself credit there. Yeah, I think you should. No pat on the back for me. Like an awful true version of a series of unfortunate events, Holmes and the three Peitzel children went on a long road trip, travelling through the USA up to Canada together. Holmes told the children's mother Carrie to join them once she was better, but it seemed he had no intention of reuniting the family and led her on a wild goose chase. He didn't allow her to see her children or, in fact, tell her where they really were ever again. Now, I'm going to talk about their 
deaths. So please skip ahead about a minute or two if you need to, as this is quite unsettling. Sorry, no skip button for you, as usual, Cheryl. Okay, I'm ready. Howard Peitzel was murdered by Holmes in Indianapolis on the group's way to Canada. Holmes rented a cottage for everyone to stay in, but he obviously had plans to carry out something awful whilst he was there. He went to town to run some errands. He first stopped at a local pharmacy to buy some drugs and then visited a repair shop to sharpen some knives he had on him. He then returned home and drugged Howard with an overdose, dismembering his body with the newly sharpened knives and then used the hearth inside the cottage to burn his remains. Howard was just eight years old. And I'm afraid things don't get any better here. The girls, 14-year-old Alice and 10-year-old Nellie, were stuck with the man who murdered their brother as they made their way to Toronto in Canada. We don't know how much they knew about Howard's murder, but we have to assume Holmes told them something about their brother to keep them compliant. But Holmes also had plans for them too, and if you suffer from claustrophobia, please skip ahead. He tricked the girls into climbing into a large trunk together and locked them inside. He then drilled a hole in the lid of the trunk, big enough to fit a rubber tube through, attaching it to the gas line inside his rental home in Toronto. He then switched the gas on, asphyxiating the girls. He then buried both the girls in the cellar, where the remains would later be discovered. Cheryl's mouth is truly agape right now. She is shocked. There are no words. They've gone. I I literally couldn't get words out. It's awful, isn't it? I literally could not get a single word out then. Sometimes I wish we could literally probe these murderers and get the real honest answers out of them to what possesses them to do these things. Yeah. What what is the the root? And what is the end goal that you are trying to achieve here? See, because I don't understand this bit and there might be something that I have missed. So by all means, do feel free to to let us know if that's the case. Um, But there seems like there is no actual claim to be made here. And seeing as he was very much a a murdering for money kind of person, I can understand that that would have been his motive to do it. But this now seems like he's just doing it for fun. Because there is no money to be made off these kids. At the expense of these poor innocent children that he has robbed from their parents. Yeah, and why bother going to the extremes of taking them with you to Canada to then kill them? To go from a happy home where they were settled, travelling across the entirety of the US into another country. Yep. It doesn't make sense to me. No. H.H. Holmes had spent months on a horrible killing spree, killing innocent children and even his best friend Benjamin, all because he wanted to be rich and to satisfy his disgusting urges. But his days were numbered, and he was about to be brought to justice by an unlikely character. A horse. What? (laughs) Hey, I'm sure that horse has seen a lot of things. We need some, some what they called coconut shells. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, that was terrible. I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. 
Remember Marion Hedgepeth, the outlaw that Holmes had promised to pay $500 to for recommending him to his dodgy lawyer friend Jephthah Howe? Well, Holmes, true to form, didn't settle his debts with the handsome bandit. And Marion was mad. He started talking to the police, feeding them information about Holmes's plot in the hopes that he may get let out early from jail for being an informer. Unfortunately, the authorities didn't really have enough information to arrest Holmes, though. They knew he'd been up to no good. After all, he'd racked up over 50 lawsuits against him over the years. But they didn't have any concrete evidence. That was until they found an outstanding arrest warrant for stealing a horse in Texas. Ha! 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 Finally! Finally! He was tracked down to Boston in November 1894, and on the 17th he was arrested and charged with the murder of Ben Peitzel. Carrie had finally got the man that murdered her husband and three of her children. Good. At first, they only had him down for fraud, but in July the following year, thanks to private detectives hired by Carrie... Yeah, go on, Carrie. Go on, gal. Yeah, get him. The bodies of Alice and Nellie were found in that rented house in Toronto. And then Howard's remains were found in the Indianapolis cottage. Once everyone put their individual nuggets of evidence together about Holmes, it started to paint a horrifying portrait of a serial killer, and the police figured if that's the kind of evidence he left in his rentals, what horrors were yet to be unearthed at the castle? Oh my god, it's coming back to the castle now. Yep. The building was searched and the police found some pretty gruesome evidence. In the vast basement, they found a collection of small bones of both animal and human origin. Some were so small that they could have only belonged to a child of just six or seven years old. No, that's not right. As they investigated further, they found a blood-soaked operating table, an array of women's clothing and surgical tools. What's worse, they found sinister-looking torture devices and shelves full of acids, which could be used to dissolve human flesh. (gasps) What Holmes had crafted at the castle was a one-stop dissection shop. Legend has it he would use his murder rooms to off his hotel patrons and send them for their final ride on the death chute, which led to the basement. He would then harvest the organs and sell them or their full cadaver on the black market, or to medical schools who didn't ask any questions. He would also sell the belongings they brought with them, and even their cleaned skeletons. He is... He is... I I don't even have the words to describe, because there is so much thought into every single thing he's done that it makes you question, why? Why? Why would you do this? Well, he's in for a penny and for a pound at this point, I think. Obviously, it's a financial incentive. Yeah. But it's a long way to go for a little penny. It is. It's quite intensive, labour intensive to do this. And particularly like cleaning and then rebuilding skeletons to sell back to medical schools. That's got to take a lot of work. And he can't be hiring people to come in and do it for him because he would have been caught a long time ago. Yeah. So I think we've got somebody who has just decided now that this is their life and they kind of want to do this, so making a bit of money on the side. Yeah. It's just the way it's going to go, unfortunately. After he was arrested and fairly certain he was not going to be leaving prison alive, Holmes was quick to talk. He confessed to 27 murders in total, but the problem was this was a professional con man. 
and when police started to investigate, many of the names on his list were people that were still alive. What? But all of this seems very odd. Why would he confess to murders he didn't commit? Well, of course, it leads us back to his original motive. Money. Newspapers were well aware they could sell a ton of copies if they held the rights to Holmes' story. So Hearst, the proud owners of Cosmopolitan, L, Harper's Bazaar, etc., offered Holmes $7,500 for his confession, worth about $250,000 in today's money, and in return he'd give them a show. He also had plans for the money, which we'll go into a bit later on. Despite Holmes delivering this false confession... He was only ever charged with one murder, that of Ben Peitzel, and for that crime, he was sentenced to death. In fact, the true number of his victims is almost impossible to prove, given his home in Chicago was specifically designed to get rid of bodies. Investigators would never know how many missing people Holmes was responsible for, and we still don't to this day. Some people estimate it to be around 200 victims, and others say it's as few as six. Ben, the three children, and his two mistresses, Emmeline and Julia. But ultimately, nobody really knows. Yeah. Holmes was sent to the gallows on May the 7th, 1896, a few days before his 35th birthday. Holmes's execution was botched, perhaps on purpose. And instead of him dying quickly from a broken neck, he hanged on the noose, kicking and struggling for 20 minutes before he eventually died. I feel like that was a bit of an inside jobby. I think it might have been, you know. Like, let's make this man suffer for all that he has done. Yeah, and I think also as well because he was only convicted of one murder and the other ones were all thrown out of court. So I think maybe the person executing him probably decided it was going to be a bit more gruesome. Oh, wow. Before his execution, Holmes had used the money he was paid by the newspaper to buy not one but two burial plots, both for him. He requested his body be buried 10 feet deep and then subsequently covered in concrete. Because he was scared, his body would suffer the same fate as many of his victims being sold for medical science. <sighs> this is this is when you know you know what you're on to because you are so guilty. Yep. Of everything you've done in your life, you're like, well, I've got to make sure that this is... That nobody does it to me, mm-hmm. even though I did it to everybody else. But well, nobody's going to do it to me. Ten feet, crikey, how'd you get out that hole? Well, you don't. You're in it for good. <laughs> no, I mean the person digging it. Oh, ladder. Oh, yeah, true. Some say that Holmes' final victim was Patrick Quinlan, the final caretaker of Holmes's castle, who worked there during the time the murders were happening, unbeknownst to him. Pat took his own life by overdosing on strychnine in 1914, 18 years after Holmes' execution, which is an absolutely horrific way to go. Strychnine is a pesticide which causes paralysis and convulsions, resulting in asphyxiation. He was found in his bedroom, along with an ominous note which just read, I couldn't sleep. (sighs) It's horrible. Now, as somebody that suffers from insomnia Mm. and not being able to sleep, that has knocked me because I'm like, oh, my God, no, I couldn't think of anything worse. Yeah. And also to pick strychnine as well. Horrible, horrible, horrible way to go. Yeah. Patrick had been complaining of feeling haunted for months 
and was suffering from horrific night terrors, which left him unable to sleep soundly for 18 years. Pat had helped to build some of the castle, and it's thought he never came to terms with what Holmes had done and forever felt guilty, even though he said he never had anything to do with the murders. As for the castle itself, it mysteriously burst into flames one night a short while before Holmes was executed. A few men had been seen entering the building one evening, one of which may have been Pat Quinlan, and by the next morning, the second and third floor had been completely gutted by a huge fire. That's suspicious. That's weird. However, the building itself was remodelled, and it wasn't until 1938, after another fire, that it was demolished. Today, the Englewood Post Office sits on the site of the once deadly castle. The true extent of Holmes's crimes are still unknown to this day, and thanks to the misreporting at the time, we may never know the truth about what actually happened. And unfortunately, his real victims will never receive the justice they deserve, thanks to the myth that's been created, which has made him the most infamous serial killer in US history. And that was the story of H.H. Holmes. I need a cigarette and I don't even smoke. So we just have to say the knowledge out there on this topic is vast and much more than we can fit in one episode. So please check out our sources if you want to find out more. Yes, and if you've been affected by any of the topics in this episode, then please check the description below for all the helpful resources at your fingertips. Next time on Killers, Cults and Queens. We're getting super freak, super freak, we're getting freaky. Meow. <laughs> we're diving into the world of the infamous sex cult, Nexium. Chains of whips excite me. Subscribe or follow to make sure that you never miss the next episode of Killers, Cults and Queens. And if you have a case or a story you'd like us to cover, get in touch at Killers, Cults, Queens. See you next time and don't be a killer or join a cult. Just be a fabulous queen. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.